as a child, of course, I loved the idea of magic and I loved the idea of miracles. And now I believe miracles are pretty much done through human beings. And I think I, I was the beneficiary of such a miracle. Hello, welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity myelopathy.org. Where we talk degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and a founder of myelopathy.org. I'm Ewan Sadler, a person with DCM and also a founder of myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters. So, to close off 2022, and where did our year go, we have pulled something from our podcast archives. And this was your choice. Yes, Ben? That's right. It was an interview we first broadcast two years ago, and it reflects on one individual's personal journey from diagnosis to reaching a decision to have surgery through the surgery and beyond, both from their individual perspective, the person with degenerative cervical myelopathy, that is Daniel Simpson, but also his surgeon, Dr. James Harrop at Thomas Jefferson. And as you'll hear, there are some unique features of this story, but regardless, there are many important lessons for both people with DCM and their surgeons. Michelle Starkey, my former co-host, was putting the questions to Daniel, but first, we'll hear my interview with Dr. James Harrop. So I want to talk a little bit about a particular case uh, and an individual patient that, that's also shared his experience with us called, called Dan Simpson. When you first met him, what was going through your head? What was your sort of thought process? The first thing that is obvious is Dan had a dog with him, a seeing eye dog. You know, one of the things about being a surgeon is you have to understand that patients have different perspectives and goals. And I think that was one of the hardest things I learned as a resident and a physician. And it wasn't really until I was an attending that I really picked up on it. And that's one of the problems with myelopathy it makes you from a independent, free caring person to loss of a lot of things we as younger people take for granted, eating, walking, opening doors, going to the bathroom, climbing stairs. But with Dan, I guess the big thing I wanted to say is I walked in the room and I recognized that he himself probably has a different set of outcomes and his goals might not be what I see in the, quote, typical patient. And the first thing I need to do is understand what his goals are for surgery. And what did you find out listening and looking at him that, that he really needed and wanted? Well, it was interesting because for him, his biggest issue was this sensation on his fingers. To you and I, the average myelopathy person will talk to you and they'll say, hey, my fingers have a little bit of marbly feeling or, or something of that. And they'll be more concerned about their gait, their balance, or their handwriting. But for him, his whole existence was his fingertips in the sense that he could no longer read Braille. At the point I saw him, I think he was losing his ability to read Braille. And again, as your average adult male who's just looking at it, you go, oh, you got a little bit of sensory loss on your fingertips. It's kind of a big operation. Are you sure you really want to get a big operation? And just to dial in on that, is this someone that would have been categorized, say, as a, as a mild myelopathy? 
it would be mild myelopathy in the sense that really all he had was his his fingers were a little numb. So again, if that happened to you or me, we might we might not even go to a doctor. And you got to remember, your average doctor seeing a patient come in with my fingertips are a little numb aren't going to go, oh, you must have spinal cord compression in the back of your neck. And so the his physicians that worked him up, I got to give him a lot of credit because he didn't have any strength problems. He didn't have any other sensory problems. He didn't have any gait problems. And so if you looked at him without a very focused eye on what his goals are, you would say, this guy is 99.9% normal. Why would you even think about operating on him? Then I examined him and he did have spinal cord dysfunction. He had what we call long track signs and he did have the start of subtle gait issues. And then the third piece, we looked at his MRI. And the interesting thing I've learned over the years is MRIs can be variable all over the place. You can have someone who has the worst myelopathy and have an MRI that doesn't look that bad because they have potentially a very sensitive spinal cord. And then you can have other people that have a horrible looking MRI and be normal. His MRI, he did have significant spinal cord compression. And another observation I've made over the years is that if you have pressure up higher at the two, three, three, four area, you tend to be more symptomatic than if you have it down lower at C67, C71 in terms of your long track signs. And so when you put his whole piece together, you have a guy who is completely losing his independence for something, again, in him was drastically important. But for other people, even myself as a surgeon, I would probably not be, oh my God, I need to get an operation. But his livelihood being lost because he's a writer. And he had a very severe amount of cord compression. Dad mentions in his interview the conversations about front plus or minus back surgery. And that was something that he was he was nervous about because he, he talks about his keen interest in, in singing. So how did you approach that decision making around, you know, what sort of operation he would need? It's interesting. One of the, the other benefits of at least my practice is I get a lot of second opinions. I think you need to educate people on what the problem is. And I think second opinions, and this is for my all the patients out there, get another opinion because you can only learn more. And, and, and I think it's absolutely great to get another opinion. And I tell all my patients to get another opinion because a more educated patient is the best thing a surgeon can have. So Dan's problem was he had what we call congenital stenosis, which means he has a very small hole where his, his spinal cord was. On top of that, he had a disc herniation up at C3-4 pressing on his spinal cord. And so when you put his whole puzzle together, you could operate him from the front, you could operate on him from the back, you could operate him from the front and the back. My approach to him was, well, why don't we do it from the backside? Because I thought we could decompress his spine enough and his spinal cord would float back. Because again, remember I said he had congenital stenosis. And that would avoid him having to get an anterior operation because of the risk of an anterior operation. And the risk go up a little higher as you go up higher in the neck. And I usually tell all my patients, 100% of them will have some degree of swelling discomfort. But I was hopeful that we could avoid that operation and just do it from the backside. And so did you think that your decision there had been influenced by by Dan being so clear about this concern about his voice and, and his singing? Absolutely. 
It's fascinating. And, and, and just going into that then on, on the numbness side, were you, were you pretty confident that was, was going to come back? He was going to be able to read again, fundamentally see again? So it's interesting. Sensory stuff does not come back great. But if you go back and look at Dan's MRI, and this is the other reason I decided to do it from the back on him, is because another option would just do to do it from the front. The way our spinal cord is designed, our sensory fibers are all in the back of the spinal cord. And when you looked at his MRI, he had a, a buckling of what we call the ligamentum flavum that was pressing into his spinal cord. And my thought was, if I could get the pressure off the back side of his spinal cord, that in itself should help the posterior columns is where his sensory fibers are. And so, you know, I had multiple different opinions of why I wanted to go from the back. This is the best way we can do your, your operation and get the best result. Fascinating. That's really interesting because I, I, my overall junior perspective is that the sensory symptoms don't come back. I think you're totally right. Um, if you look at my whole bell curve of, of patients throughout the year, Dan is rare, but I think Dan presented much, much earlier than the normal patient because his sensation awareness was so much greater. And that's sort of the whole goal of this, this. If you step back and say, okay, what's the goal of the Recode project? It's really to get people informed for them to understand what the symptoms are, to seek out treatment earlier. So if they have a problem, we can intervene and maximize their recovery. If we look at this priority then around how can we individualize surgery, what pieces of information do surgeons need? What, what would your perspectives be on that? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think for, from a surgical point of view, again, we need to pull together the whole piece. We got to remember our goal is to take care of what the patient wants and what their objective is. What I've learned is you can never guess what a patient wants. You need to ask them. Some people want to get rid of the pain. Some people want their hand better. Dan's point was, I only want my fingertips better. So I think the first thing is for the surgeon and the patient to align their goals. And I think that's a huge part of it. So as a patient, you need to make sure your surgeon understands, this is what I want. This is what's important to me. Obviously, you've got a lot of experience uh, of looking and treating myelopathy, and there's lots of perspectives that you can bring to your decision-making. Are there still key areas of uncertainty that you face that you just you don't really have that surety about which way you should go? That is my daily struggle, and, and I see a lot of very complicated patients where I don't know, A, if they have any myelopathy, and B, if I operate on them, will they get better? Because you got to remember, from a surgeon perspective, the worst thing I can do is give you all the risks of a surgery and none of the benefits. You know, medicine has been great in that we're extending the lives of everyone, but there's a lot of other issues, neurologic conditions that can mimic a myelopathy. Number two is there's a dynamic component of a myelopathy, meaning motion, that we haven't totally figured out. And while MRIs are very good, they're usually with patients in a supine position where a lot of patients might not be pressing on their spinal cord. So I think that's one piece we really need to tease out. And the third part is if you do the same operation on the same MRI, what it looks like, you get different results. So it'd be nice if we could have some piece where I could tell the patient, your prognosis of a surgery is going to be this much recovery versus that much recovery. Because I think it would help some people decide on what do they want to do if they knew potentially what their outcome would be. 
And so I think bringing that again to the research priority, individualizing surgery, how do you think researchers should go about approaching answering this question? We're trying to do that by redefining what a myelopathy is and what a cervical myelopathy patient is. Uh, Because if you go back, we don't understand exactly what the whole group entails. And I think once we get a better definition and we can be more black or white on different areas, it's going to help us categorize them. Because as we categorize them, then we can see, hey, does this population do better with this surgery? Does this age group with this problem do better with that surgical approach? Do you need to operate on that patient with that problem? And right now, we sort of throw everything in one big container. People are getting older, so there's getting to be a much greater number of patients with cervical myelopathy, and their goals are changing, which means patients now do not want to have limitations. And so I think we need to do a better job, meaning us surgeons and researchers, understanding and breaking down myelopathy and giving the patients the answers they're striving for of what's my future look like and what are my options. So now to get a different perspective on that same story, the perspectives, of course, of the person living with DCM, Dan Simpson himself. Dan is a writer, and I'm looking at the dedication he wrote to Jim Harrop in a copy of his book of poetry he subsequently published, School for the Blind. The dedication from Dan to Dr. Harrop reads, Thank you for giving me back the ability to travel safely, see the world with my hands, and especially read Braille. I think of you every day. Here's Dan telling his own story. I was noticing some tingling in my hands, and that kind of stayed the same for you know maybe a couple of months, and, and then I felt it a little bit more in my wrists and arms, and I felt a little bit of weakness in my arms. I, I've been blind since birth. My brother, I had a twin brother who, who had ALS at the time. I remember getting a, a Braille condolence letter and realizing that I was having more trouble reading than maybe even a month ago. I was conducting my brother's memorial service and I I really had to memorize a poem I was going to recite and pretty much memorize the order of the program because I could barely read it and uh, I was painfully slow at deciphering the Braille. I I tried holistic uh, purported cures from the internet. Uh, I tried physical therapy eventually, but I had a wonderful one and she just said to me after six weeks, this isn't really improving your sense of touch. I think you probably should go back to your GP and and explore other options like surgery or see what she suggested. So I went to her and I think eventually I went to a neurologist and then had an MRI and then things really kicked into high gear because I had barely gotten home from doing the MRI and the doctor's office called and said, the radiologist just saw your pictures and they're very concerned you should get to the emergency room immediately. And so I did go to the emergency room. I then went to see the neurosurgeon on call. We talked about options. He said, you definitely need surgery. I would go through the front and then I'd turn you over and do the back. And 
I was concerned because I'm a singer. What about my vocal cords? And he said, well, there is some risk and, you know, usually it doesn't happen, but if it does, then you can never really get your singing voice back. So I went for a second opinion, which is to Dr. Harrop. And I guess in your case, of course, it's not just the singing voice that you were hoping to retain, but also the reading of Braille. I mean, this is, is a really important thing to you and something that would be very different to someone suffering with DCM who's sighted. Yes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I like audio books, but as a poet, I really want to see what the shape of a poem is, where the line breaks are. And I really worried that I would not be able to read Braille. And then there's just the informational aspect of it. I have various kinds of labels and tactile markings on appliances, my stove, uh, washing machine and dryer. And I just started wondering how difficult life could be. And you mentioned that you then started to um, visit Dr. Harrop. So could you tell us a little bit more about that meeting and what information he was using about you in order to enable him to plan your surgery? Within seconds of looking at my x-ray, he said, wow, you're an interesting guy. You have congenital stenosis and it's really quite high up. He said, I would not go through the front. It's way too close to the vocal cords. I would not want to mess around with it. So I totally, I was relieved to hear that. And then we discussed how urgent the surgery was. And he said, really, you know, it's up to you. You're still functioning. You could wait. But I was quite clear. No, I, I really want to do this as soon as we can. And he, he got that completely, how important the, the reading was to me. Uh, but when I said to Dr. Harrop, what's the likelihood of this working? He said, well, we've been doing a lot of research about front versus back. And he said, I would say national average, it's got a 90% chance of working. I would say from my personal experience, it's never not worked. That was just music to my ears. I felt he raised my hopes. Um, I, I mean, I told him how important Braille was to me. And I could tell that he was very tuned into that had the surgery in Jefferson Hospital. I was in terrific hands. When I woke up, you know, the first thing I said, well, okay, I'm alive, that's good. Let's see, the hands, I can feel things, this is really good. What really told me that he was thinking about this all along though is when he came to visit me in the hospital early the morning after the surgery, the first thing he said is, how are your fingers? How's the sensation in them? So I knew he had been thinking about that all the time. I have to say, I, there's probably not a day goes by that I don't think of Dr. Harrop. Whether I'm reading, I can read Braille, um, I read Braille music, uh, so that affects my, my singing life, or I have a guide dog, uh, getting, walking with my dog, um, just living my life, uh, touching things. I, you know, touch is so important to me, whether it's the touch of doing practical things like tying my shoes or the touch of holding my wife's hand or a friend's hand. It's so, it's so integral to life that it was a huge relief to know that I could go on and, and return to my normal life. As I was getting closer to the surgery, I was noticing that I really had to concentrate much harder to type accurately. 
And my job is providing technical support, uh, mostly through email to other blind people who are downloading books from the Library of Congress uh, website. So had I not had the surgery or if it hadn't been successful, I don't know, you know, I don't know how that would have affected my typing, which also would have affected my ability to write. And so from listening to your story, um, of course, it was very important that Dr. Harab approached your surgery in a very individualized way to make sure that you had the best outcome for your life. So what would be your recommendations to surgeons and healthcare professionals about individualizing treatment for people with DCM? Taking the time to listen to a, a patient, what's concerning them most, what they're afraid of losing or what they have lost at this point and would hope to get back. We wondered whether any of your writing, your poems, specifically related to DCM, and if so, whether you would be able to share one with us. I found a f just a fragment of something in a, a journal, but it was as I was starting to experience DCM. This is just from January of 2016, so about four months before the surgery, I'd say. It's too bad that my first time to read my brother's and my books in commercially produced Braille is marred by the numbness and tingling I feel in my arms and hands. The chronic pain that grabs my neck, even when stationary, but sharper when in motion, can't help but grab my attention as well. I should count myself lucky if all I need to do to correct all this and to one day read these books with unmitigated pleasure is to undergo surgery for spinal fusion, but enough fetching. I think about magic and miracles, and I think that as a child, of course, I loved the idea of magic and I love the idea of miracles, but I, I think they always seem like a supernatural phenomenon and now I believe miracles are pretty much done through human beings. And I think I, I was the beneficiary of such a miracle. I'm very, very fortunate. And it, it is a miracle that this happened. And I know that it doesn't happen for everybody. And that's where it gets tricky. I decided that I really don't know how to, how to put that all together, that... Uh, some people, their surgeries don't come out as, as well as others. And because it's come to me, I really feel like living in gratitude is, is the way to go. So Ben, tell us more. Why did you select this interview from our archives? Well, it's Christmas. And as Daniel said, it was his Christmas miracle. But more seriously, I think this is the perfect example of how we should be looking at DCM care. This interview was first played as part of an episode exploring the number 10 research priority for DCM, individualizing surgery. How can we better tailor the decision to operate or the type of operation to the particular person living with DCM? So in an ideal world, decisions are very formulaic, you know, one plus two always equals three. But realistically in medicine, whilst we try to fit decisions into these simple equations, we're typically forcing slightly 
round pegs into a square hole, so to speak. Is that really a one? Is that really a two? And whilst that is the role of an expert to offer that judgment, there will always be some subjectivity. And I think for people with DCM, that's a really important take-home message. There is perhaps this fairy tale assumption that a doctor, as the expert, is offering you certainty. And I think part of the problem is that people in ill health are going through so much and certainty is not what they want. But it's a reality. And so in this context, for someone with DCM, I think that message of you are your strongest advocate and taking the time, if possible, to become an expert, to seek multiple opinions might be valuable. But as a minimum, you must be a shared partner in that decision-making process. And likewise, as professionals, we absolutely need to listen to the individual and understand their context. We need to share the evidence as we know it and work to reach a shared decision. Ultimately, it's more time-consuming than just making a recommendation but we don't treat average statistics, we treat individuals. Yes, Ben, I totally agree. So next month is my choice, and I have chosen an interview from last year with Professor Abdul Lalkin on chronic pain. For someone who has been through such a difficult and lonely journey of frustration to acceptance from despair to coping, I just wish I'd read this book earlier. It's a clear explanation of the challenges we with malopathy can face and why. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast is always produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. Thanks very much for tuning in. We look forward to bringing you more from the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy in 2023. Remember to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. But all that's left to say is a very happy Christmas and New Year, wherever you are. And let's continue to make myelopathy matter in 2023. Yes, and that is always my New Year's resolution. And happy Christmas, everyone.